When we consider the ancient Jewish presence in the land of Israel, the city that comes up first is not the one you might think. It's not Jerusalem, but Hebron, located south of Jerusalem in Judea, what we call today part of the West Bank. The book of Genesis places in Hebron the very first piece of Jewish real estate, the tomb that the patriarch Abraham bought to bury his wife Sarah. For thousands of years now, her resting spot has marked a Jewish claim to the land. She was later joined by most of the other patriarchs and matriarchs, Abraham, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Leah. One matriarch, Rachel, was buried outside Bethlehem. Hebron, too, was the first capital of King David, the city where he was made king before he centralized the Israelite kingdom in Jerusalem. 2,000 years ago, the Roman Jewish king Herod built a large tomb complex, and we can trace the Jewish community in that city back into ancient times, through the Byzantine era, the Muslim period, the Crusades, and into the 20th century. And that's when it got torn apart. In 1929, Arabs murdered nearly 70 Jewish men, women, and children in a riot that destroyed Jewish businesses, homes, and synagogues, and drove the survivors out. The violence was so cruel that hundreds of local Arabs hid their Jewish neighbors from the rampage, saving their lives. Some families returned to Hebron after a few years, but were forced to leave for good during another Arab revolt in 1936. And then in 1948, Hebron ended up in the hands of Jordan, which barred Jews from entering. Judaism's second holiest site, the tomb of the patriarchs and matriarchs, was cut off, and the thousands-year-old Jewish community erased. But Hebron ended up back in Israel's hands in 1967 during the Six-Day War. Then a city of 35,000 Arabs and no Jews, it was unclear how the city would fit into the bigger schemes over what to do with the West Bank. As we'll see, the city was generally thought to fall into territory that would eventually be returned to the Arabs, but others disagreed with that approach. How could the Jewish right to settle in one of their most holiest cities be denied, especially when that right had been stolen from them through murder and theft? Like Jerusalem's Temple Mount, Hebron and the Tomb of the Patriarchs and Matriarchs represented a powerful theological symbol. Its return to Jewish hands was a sign of God's favor and the coming redemption that could not be denied. To make it happen, a group of would-be settlers decided that they would reclaim Hebron not through cooperation with Israel's government, but through confrontation. So, today's topic. We've got a new Prime Minister, Golda Meir, and the question is how Israel's thinking about the territories and the prospects for peace are changing, or are not. We find that, once again, determined actors on the ground have a huge impact in the absence of a definitive Israeli strategy deepening the occupation and the wider conflict in the face of Arab intransigence. So I'm your host, Jason Harris, and welcome back to Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. Depending on how you want to look at it, the post-1967 settlement movement wasn't going super well. A dozen or so settlements had sprung up in various places, like the Golan Heights and Kfar Etzion in the West Bank. But these were all small villages, very sparsely populated, and located in rural areas that were hard to get to, and which made for harder living. Idealistic youngsters would trickle in and out out of curiosity, but then leave soon after. Unless you had a deep commitment to the project or quickly found a spouse, it wasn't the best life. 
Still, there were just enough idealists to make plans for new settlements. And one of them was a 32-year-old Orthodox rabbi named Moshe Levinger. When the religious Zionist Hanan Porat founded Kfar Etzion in 1967, Rabbi Moshe Levinger was there. Kfar Etzion had been wiped out in an Arab massacre in 1948, and its reestablishment was seen as a matter of justice and Jewish reclamation of land to which it rightfully belonged. It was the first salvo in the religious Zionist movement to settle the West Bank, or as they called it, Judea and Samaria, the historic Jewish homeland going back thousands of years. Hanan Porat had worked with the Israeli government, all the way to receiving ambiguous permission from Prime Minister Levi Eshkol. The government officially labeled Kfar Etzion as a military outpost in order to dodge accusations that they were violating international law by settling civilians on occupied land. But in Israel's view, Kfar Etzion had been Jewish land, legally bought and paid for decades earlier, and so this military outpost designation was a polite fiction that everyone knew wasn't true. But Moshe Levinger was much more militant than Hanan Porat or Kfar Etzion's other settlers. He wasn't interested in working with the Israeli government. Jewish settlement in Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, was the divine inalienable right of the Jewish people, not to be curtailed by any secular national government. If the Israeli government wants to agree and help out, more's the better. But if not, Levinger wanted to settle anyway. Levinger had studied under the famous Rabbi Zvi Yehuda Kook, the son of the spiritual founder of religious Zionism. The Israeli journalist Gershom Gorenberg writes that Levinger had learned, quote, the commandment that the land of Israel must be in the hands of the Jewish people, not just by having settlements, but that it's under Jewish sovereignty, end quote. So it wasn't enough that Jews could simply have permission, say, to live there. They had to own it, control it. That was the fulfillment of the covenantal promise between God and the Jewish people. As Levinger surveyed the area now under Israeli control, his eyes fell on the ancient city of Hebron, one of Judaism's four sacred cities, the tomb of the founders of Judaism, which had been denied Jewish access all these years. Unlike the hard-scrabble rural settlements struggling to attract people, Hebron was a large and vibrant city. But it was also a tense one, as the Arabs there deeply resented Israel's new occupation and were determined to preserve their control of the city and keep out the Jews. Israel was reluctant to move forward with any plans for Hebron, but Levinger wasn't. He set his sights on Passover, 1968, to set up a confrontation that would draw the nation's attention and plant a stake for religious Zionism in the heart of this ancient, once Jewish, now Arab, city. So as we've discussed in previous episodes, Israel didn't have much of a solid plan for what to do with the occupied territories. But Yegal alone did. The war hero and current minister of labor had drafted up a plan that was named, in a feat of originality, the Alon Plan. Alon was concerned with two objectives, that Israel be able to defend itself from another invasion, and that Israel avoid having to absorb too many Palestinians, since that would upset the Jewish majority demographic in Israel. So to do this, he designed a map that split the West Bank, 
Some areas would stay with Israel, like the Jordan Valley, which ran along the Jordan River boundary between Jordan and the West Bank, that is, between Jordan and Israel. Kifar Etzion, too, would be kept, and a large chunk of the West Bank from Jerusalem down along the Dead Sea. These areas were mostly desert and hills and very sparsely populated. But the major Arab cities, like Hebron and Jericho and Nablus and Ramallah, these would be returned to Jordan for a peace treaty. The Alone Plan was rejected by a vote of Israel's ministers six weeks after the Six-Day War. But later that summer came the Arab summit in Khartoum and the three no's that rejected peace, recognition, and negotiation with Israel, all of which meant that Israel was stuck with the occupied territories. So even though Israel never approved the Alone Plan, they more or less followed that model in the absence of a better plan. The secret talks with King Hussein in the years following the war were based on the outlines of the Alone Plan, but Hussein rejected them. He wanted Israel to return all the territories in their complete form, and that had been laid out in United Nations Resolution 242. Golda Meir asked, Well, if the Arabs just want the borders that they had before the war, so then why do they attack Israel in the first place? Which is not a bad question. The point is that Yigal alone was in favor of building Jewish settlements on land that under his plan would become part of Israel. So, the Jordan Valley, or the sections of the West Bank where there weren't any Arabs, like Kfar Zion. Hebron was an Arab city, right on Alon's proposed border, but kept just inside the Arab lines on his map. But for many, there was no denying the historic pull of Hebron as a sacred city. They argued that because of its deep history and the ethnic cleansing of the Jewish community there, Jews had a right to settle in and around it. So Yigal alone came up with an idea. In January of 1968, he suggested that Israel build a Jewish settlement just outside Hebron to be part of the city, but just over the line into Jewish territory. That would align with his idea of having defensible territory, but also allow for a Jewish claim on land as close to the city as possible. The problem is that the Hebron plan fell in with all the other plans making up Israel's newish occupation, which is to say, there was very little forward movement. And this is where Rabbi Moshe Levinger saw his opportunity. As Passover approached in the spring of 1968, Moshe Levinger had an idea for a confrontation with Israel's government that would hopefully force an acceptance of Jewish settlement in Hebron. And not on the outskirts, like Yigal alone proposed, but right in the heart of the city. Levinger's plan was that he and a few others would book a night at the Park Hotel in town in order to celebrate the first night of Passover. But when the holiday ended, they would just refuse to leave. He figured, let's see what the government will do then. Will they really prohibit Jews from settling in the sacred Jewish city? Now, the way things worked then is that Jews could freely travel in the occupied territories, but if you wanted to stay overnight, you needed a permit from the army. And the army at this point banned Jewish settlement in the West Bank. It seems that Levinger approached Yigal alone with his idea, but it's unclear what the minister's response was. According to the journalist Gershom Gorenberg, Yigal alone later said that he agreed to a permit only if the settlers would agree to first get permission from the military and that they would accept the decision to leave if the government later decided against settling Hebron. Whatever was the case, Levinger and his settlers got the permission, and on April 12, 1968, 
set up shop at the Park Hotel. Levenger boasted nearly 100 people. The army said maybe it was only a couple dozen. The real number was probably somewhere between that. They held out through Passover and then, sure enough, refused to leave, declaring themselves an official Jewish settlement in Hebron. And they weren't quiet about it. Levenger loudly proclaimed himself the ultimate authority in the city, even above that of the Arab mayor. He intentionally provoked the local Arabs, especially at the tomb of the patriarchs and matriarchs. In her memoirs, Golda Meir wrote, quote, There was not a question but that they were behaving most improperly and in a manner that was very damaging to Israel's image. The Arabs at once set up a great hue and cry about the Jewish annexation of Hebron, and Israeli public opinion was very divided on the subject. End quote. And here was the problem. Prime Minister Levi Eshkol was privately pissed about Levenger's actions. Many Israelis, including many in government, wanted the army to throw the settlers out, an early sign of opposition to settlement that would grow into its own movement in the coming decades. Even those who were sympathetic to the settlers disagreed that they should be allowed to so willfully defy Israel's authority. Golda Meir later wrote that she well understood what was going on. The settlers were trying to create a fact on the ground that would force the Israeli government to decide the future of West Bank Jewish settlement before the government was ready to do so. But there was also much public support for Levenger's settlers. As much as she wrote that she deplored the settlers' tactics, Golda Meir questioned whether a Jewish government should pass legislation forbidding Jews to settle anywhere on earth. She imagined a future in which Israel and Jordan would sign a peace treaty. Quote, would that mean we would agree that no Jews would ever be allowed to live there again? Obviously, no Israeli government could ever obligate itself to a permanent banning of Jews from any part of the Holy Land. And Hebron was not an ordinary market town. It meant a lot to believing Jews. End quote. Some of those believing Jews were in government. And remember, the government was a unity government in which the right-wing opposition parties joined with the ruling left-wing parties, Across the right and left, you had politicians supporting territorial maximalism. That is, Israel keeping as much of the occupied territories as possible for Jewish settlement. If they pulled their support, the government would fall apart. So Levi Eshkol's options were limited, and more time went by as the government tried to figure out what to do. But with each passing day, the settlers just became more entrenched in Hebron. Prime Minister Levi Eshkol and his cabinet eventually came up with a compromise. Levenger and his settlers would leave the Park Hotel in the heart of the city and move to an army compound set up for them nearby, still within Hebron. Levenger had won a resounding victory, not just for the settlers, but for the religious Zionist movement that saw itself as the new vanguard of Zionism itself, the frontline pioneers forging ahead in the great march of history. Gershom Gornberg writes that, quote, the practical implication was that direct, defiant action was an effective means of holding the whole land, central to Rabbi Zvi Yehuda Cook's vision. The theological implication was that settling in Hebron had cosmic significance, even beyond settling elsewhere. King David's kingdom was a model for the Messianic kingdom. David began in Hebron, so settling in Hebron would lead to the final redemption. End quote. So although the move to the army base was intended to be temporary while the government made a decision, the reality was that the settlers were here to stay in Hebron. 
It was, once again, the creation of facts on the ground by a small group of private settlers acting with the support of certain members of the government that were able to set Israel's course. Levenger proved that the religious imperative could beat out secular practicality, leaving the government of the Jewish state unable to counteract the actions of Jews settling on historic Jewish land. The writer Yossi Klein-Halevi writes that, quote, Levenger liked to compare himself to the Zionist pioneers who had founded the state, but he was defying a sovereign Jewish government, not British occupiers. Levenger was invoking an alternative religious legitimacy to the secular state. End quote. And remember, all this time was the politics and diplomacy happening in the background, as Israel negotiated with King Hussein of Jordan over the fate of the West Bank, and as the Arab states practiced their Khartoum policy of no peace, no recognition, and no negotiation, and as Palestinian terrorism spread through Israel and made worldwide spectacle of an airplane hijacking, Israel couldn't give back the territories, even if it wanted to. And it was quite clear that many didn't want to. And so no decision or grand strategy could be implemented. Moshe Levenger and his settlers cleverly exploited the situation to establish themselves. And then a grenade was thrown. On October 9th, 1968, during the Jewish holiday of Sukkot, a Palestinian terrorist threw a grenade at a crowd of thousands of Jews praying at the tomb of the patriarchs and matriarchs. No one was killed, but dozens were wounded. Like the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, the tomb of the patriarchs and matriarchs was a site holy to Jews and Muslims. For centuries, Muslims had severely limited the ability of Jews to access the site. Famously, Jews were only allowed to come up to the seventh step of the stairs outside the tomb, which had become a mosque. After the war, the Minister of Defense, Moshe Dayan, set up an agreement with the Muslim authorities. Jews could visit the tomb except during set times when Muslims were praying there. And Jews weren't permitted to pray, but they weren't prohibited either, and so in practice it became a kind of trade-off in prayer times and access. But for religious Zionists like Moshe Levenger, this wasn't good enough. This was the second holiest site in Judaism, but like the Temple Mount, here again the Muslims had all the power, right down to the literal keys to the front door. Going back to the idea that the land of Israel had to be in Jewish hands as a matter of sovereignty, not just settlements, religious Zionists wanted to see the tomb brought under Jewish control, where it had begun millennia ago. The grenade attack gave them an opening to agitate for more protection, meaning a greater Israeli military presence right in the center of Hebron. Which, don't get me wrong, is fair. If you can't argue against Israel allowing Jews the right to access their sacred sites, you also can't deny the need for Israel to then protect those Jews from extremists looking to kill them. But the implication had far-reaching consequences. It was religious messianism backed up with national military force. It was a huge provocation for an occupation that was supposed to be benign, hands-off. The tomb became a flashpoint between Jews and Muslims, the scene of much tension and violence over the years, and remains so today. Hebron continued to confound Israel, even after Golda Meir became prime minister in March of 1969. She was much less supportive of settlements and annexation than Levi Eshkol. She wasn't concerned with the biblical borders of Israel, just with the political ones that would ensure its security and survival. 
She was completely on the other end of the spectrum from the ideology of the religious Zionists and was opposed to annexing the West Bank. The writer Eleanor Burkett notes that in June of 1969, she forced the military government to return hundreds of acres that it had taken from 25 Arab families in the West Bank. Still, though, the politics remained the same, with a carefully balanced and very tense unity government of competing agendas. Eleanor Burkett writes that, quote, The spectacle of Israelis taking the law into their own hands to constrain government action was the sort of open challenge Golda could never abide. More than once, she ordered the military to physically remove Jews from would-be settlements on the West Bank, but she knew that every move she took was politically dangerous. Golda, like Eshkol before her, opted for blind expediency and postponed a decision that was, in fact, too pressing to delay. End quote. That is, Golda wasn't going to officially implement the alone plan to carve up the West Bank. That would cause a rift in her own left-wing party, alienate the right wing, and crash the government. Given the absence of any Arab who would agree to a peace deal, it wasn't worth the risk. What would be the point? For Golda, the occupied territories were Israel's only bargaining chip, not to be relinquished except for a commitment of peace. So she was stuck. But as we've seen, just because the government was at an impasse doesn't mean the settlers were. They continued pressing for official permission to establish a permanent settlement, kept creating a scene, kept building more and more support, especially with Yigal Alon. Yigal Alon was now advocating for building a settlement right next to Hebron, basically attaching a Jewish neighborhood onto the city with a couple hundred houses. For months, the government debated what to do and in September of 1969, decided to transform the temporary military base into a permanent civilian settlement known as Kiryat Arba, which is the name of the place where the matriarch Sarah dies in the book of Genesis, a stone's throw from her tomb. Gershom Gornberg writes that, quote, The Hebron decision was a milestone. The government was fully legitimizing Levenger's wildcat settlement in Hebron, it was establishing a settlement in the midst of a heavily populated Arab, Arab area. For the first time, it was creating an urban settlement, funded by the government, that would eventually draw thousands of Israelis into occupied territory. End quote. Moshe Levenger had won big, and proved that confrontation, provocation, and defiance of their own government could get the settlers what they wanted. Religious Jews had succeeded in planting themselves on sacred Jewish land where their government had feared to tread. It was they, not the government, who had re-established the Jewish presence in one of the most ancient, mythical, and important Jewish cities. It was a sensation. Moshe Levenger catapulted himself into the leader of the confrontational wing of religious Zionism. However much it graded on the 71-year-old Golda Meir, it was a turbo boost of inspiration to young religious Zionists. They saw themselves as the heroes in this story of this moment of Jewish history, and in the story of Israel and the Zionist movement. Settling the West Bank was now risen to a religious duty, the nationalistic expression of the theology of the Cook rabbis. Levenger and his settlers believed it was they who were putting Israel firmly on the road to redemption. Although Golda Meir did send in the army to forcibly remove Jews from other settlements in the West Bank, she couldn't and didn't remove them everywhere. Israel began allowing some settlements. Slowly, small settlements began popping up, a couple dozen people at a time, creating yet more facts on the ground. 
siphoning off land available to trade back to Jordan for peace, and splitting off Palestinian areas from one another. But the settlements weren't Golda's only headaches. In August of 1969, she received a letter from 18 Soviet Jews. We want to emigrate to Israel, they said, but the Soviet Union won't let us. Israel must help. Golda's heart ached for the continuing misery of these persecuted Jews, and she was determined that the Jewish state and world Jewry would jump to their cause. So that's next time. As always, I'm at jewonano.com, and my email is jewonanopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. The Heathrow out. See you later.